Hey everyone, this is Derek Stone. And this is Conrad Geringer. And you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today, Conrad and I will discuss several topics around the World Championship, the Ironman 70.3 World Championship in St. George, Utah. We're going to cover the race course, uh, some of our top picks, and some of the you know hot topics around the course, which includes some of the wave starts and things of that nature. Working Triathlete is going to have a big crew there. It will be fun to, to get together and the one thing is it looks like, you know, in the pro list, a lot of the athletes from out of the country were able to travel here because, you know, the U S makes exceptions, but mostly the world championships field is for the age groupers. It's going to be composed of Americans just because there are restrictions to traveling still with COVID, which is kind of funny because it should probably be the reverse because the U.S. is doing horrendously bad right now compared to everywhere else, like in Europe. So it's going to be a unique world championship. So I think it's going to be a little bit less competitive on the on the age group side. Yeah, I agree. I still think it's going to be competitive, at least from like uh, the density of the the Americans. I think it's getting there. I think you see a lot of Europeans at fast races and post lot fast times, but. I think the pointy end will be pretty heated still, but once you get to that, the masses of athletes, it's not going to look like your typical 70.3 world championship. I saw someone post on, on a Facebook thread about like, you know, we did it. We're all here. We're racing the best in the world. And I saw some people posting about how it's the American championships. And <laughs> I think for the, for the age groupers, it's going to be a really competitive you know, North American event, um, probably similar to like the, the challenge Daytona last year. Um, really, I mean, that was a fast race. Um, but also it was very competitive because I think everyone was itching the race. Um, and then with Kona being canceled too, I think anyone that was doubling up, they are certainly going to put all their eggs in one basket and, and hammer, hammer down on this one for sure. I mean, that's a good point. I think there will be a handful of guys who, you know, would go sub four on a more traditional course, but this course is, it's pretty tough. You know, it's, it's hilly. Talk about that soon, but do you want to talk about the course first? Let's talk about, you know, I guess our top picks for the pro field, and then we'll dive into the the course itself. So I guess I'll let you go first. We'll, let's, we'll start with men and then we'll go to women. So who are your top three yeah. men picks? I think the Norwegians are, are going to go one, two. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. that. If there was a third one in there, you know, it, I would say they go one, two, three, you know, but right. I, I 100% agree with that. And after that, so I think Gustav Eden, you know, he's the reigning world champion. Uh, he won handedly at Nice. And this course, I think, is somewhat similar to Nice in that, well, at least the bike course is similar insofar as it's more challenging than a typical bike course. And the run course, I think, plays to his favor also because it's a challenging run course. But he's strong. And I think that bet against Christian, but I think Gustav is a little bit stronger. I think he's better in the in the longer distances. I think he's a better kind of threshold athlete and he he did well at Daytona and he's carrying he I mean he's the reigning world champion and he's looking he's looking good. I, I don't know how how big either one of them are, but I know Gustav is he does appear to be smaller. Um yep. and I think if it's hot out, that might play in his favor. However, you know, Blumenfeld ran incredibly well at in Tokyo. Obviously he's the the Olympic champ. So it's a different distance, different format. 
Um, but I, I expect to see a pretty good race with those two going head to head. Um, and it'll be a matter of just how the race plays out in the, in the day. For my third, though, you know, I'm kind of going with the dark horse somewhat, but Sam Long, you know, he's been a big character and uh, he's been someone that's been on this course before. He's trained there and uh, he's performed really well this year. His swim is not to par with these guys, um, but I think he knows how to put down the hammer on the bike and he, he's been running pretty well as well. Yeah. I mean, you definitely don't want to count him out, obviously. So I- he did not have the best showing at the Collins cup. You never know. He, he could certainly go. I would not be surprised if he podiums, I would be maybe a little bit surprised if he does. However, you don't have any of the like obvious true studs showing up, you know, like Jan is not racing Lionel. He obviously beat Sam long at St. George this year and he's not racing. I think it's kind of wide open that third, third place slot. I mean, Daniel Backergaard is, is looking good. I know Javier Gomez is not racing. Or at least I don't think he is. Ben Canu, Ben Canu yeah, ben, look good. He's yeah, he's been he's gotten second before when it was in Chattanooga, right? So he he knows how to race, but yeah, he's certainly someone that could you know come back to the podium as well. And I think actually the year after he was fourth in South Africa behind. Jan, uh, Brownlee, and then Gomez, I believe. So that I means that's a strong field that he got fourth in. So right. without without the obvious guys contending, he could also be up there as well. I also think he's just really strong. Um, mm-hmm. Good cyclist, good watts to kilo, and he could he can fight. One thing with this course is that it's just hilly and it's punchy. The rhythm riders, the rhythm runners they're not going to be able to get into the flow as well as they might otherwise. I think that that will make things a little bit interesting and, and you never know. I know, I think I heard Rudy Von Berg is not racing, but he would have been a good pick for this one because of the nature of the bike course. I think he kind of proved himself strong on, you know, punchier race during more challenging races. Obviously he crushed Nice uh, yeah. with that climb. And he's been, he's been looking decent, but I think he might be hurt. Uh, yeah. Sam Appleton also is looking good. He, he looked good at the Collins cup. Jan beat him. I think he was in the race with Jan. However, wasn't it Sam long, uh, I believe, yep. and Sam Appleton going head to head and Sam Appleton definitely beat Sam long fairly handedly. So we'll see the dynamics will be a little bit different because there will be multiple swim packs. I know Sam long basically swam solo at the Collins cup. You know, obviously he's not going to make the front pack, but he has a big engine. So the question is the nature of the course is it's more challenging on the bike. You know, is that going to make it, you know, the, the concept of there being bike packs, it does it make it more difficult for people to maybe work together and benefit tremendously from being in a pack. Yeah, you that's know? a good point. I've never been to the course and obviously I've watched the, re- the reviews on, on YouTube and you can look at the course elevation, but it still doesn't paint a, the best picture as if you were out there. We do know there's one pretty substantial climb. It looks like about 1,100 feet, give or take, within that one climb up, up Snow Canyon. And, mm-hmm. you know, that might separate some people, but also, like, I think it's where some people are going to take a risk and they just hammer up it because they know they can recover going back to T2. Mm-hmm. Or do they just hold a steady power and then try to hold the steady power down Snow Canyon as well? It'll be interesting. 
So until that climb, I mean, it's still rolling, but I mean, that climb yeah. is like, it's like a thousand feet. And I think it kind of starts at mile 45-ish, like 42, 43. And it's, it's pretty steep and it's definitely going to, yeah, I mean, athletes are going to separate on that climb, but you know, it's interesting because it happens pretty late in the race. Yep. So, yeah, you know, if it would be maybe more interesting if it was in the middle or at the beginning or something, because athletes right. really could separate and execute a, a strategy to, to break away. Yeah. I think, um, the mental aspect too, when you think later in a race, when it's later in the bike at the 43 mile mark, is it going to mentally just impact someone that they, they escape, you know, and do they let that person go and not think right. twice about the run, even yeah. for the age groupers, you know, they think about that too. If, if they're trying to compete with or against someone, do they, do they let that person go or do they try to hang on with them? So I think tactics will be a bigger piece in this race because it is later in the race. It's not like Nice, you know, where the, the climb was pretty much in the middle. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, I guess it's in the beginning, you know, you climbed and then descended with some flat in the beginning then. So it's kind of in the middle, I suppose. Yeah. But Chattanooga in, Chattanooga in 2017, the climb was pretty much the first thing you did. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave people the opportunity to recover and gather their bearings too once they got rolling again. You know, the other factor here is, is the run is also not easy. It's pretty right. darn, it's difficult. I mean, it's just as hard as the bike. There's 13, basically 1300 feet of elevation gain. So you're basically climbing a hundred feet per mile. That's the average. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot. <laughs> so you, you definitely don't want to burn your matches while you're cycling. Cause it's going to come back to bite you. And the people who run the second lap of that run, well, it's a two lap run and you have to run that second lap well to have a shot at running even close to your potential. So you have to save something. You have to leave something in the tank. Absolutely. But what about the women, the pro women? The obvious pick, I think Daniela, Lucy, Charles, I think will be up there. And then the third, Paula Finley. I assume Daniela's racing, but she did Ironman Switzerland. Right. That was last a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So she's going to be going in to this race with just two weeks, basically recovery plus a small build or, or something. But I, I just don't know. If she really focused on this and I haven't seen on her social media. If she's, she hasn't mentioned this race <laughs> like at all. So it's kind of unique, but you never bet against Daniela. If she shows up, I would probably, yes. I mean, she's going to be top three. I, I have to imagine that. And if she's, so she focused at all on this race. I would not be surprised if she wins. Certainly. You said Lucy Charles also. Yeah. Lucy Charles. Yep. And then Paula. Yeah. Finley. Yeah. But yeah that, that's a good point. Though. I forgot Danielle raced Switzerland. You know, I put my notes down that she did that. And, you know, if, again, yeah, if she shows up, I, I still think she's going to be a factor, but mm-hmm. if she doesn't show up, I might have to pick a different person. But yeah, like you said, I guess we don't know until we know. You know, I think Lucy Charles is going to be really tough to beat. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think she wants it. I think she wants world championships. She looked good at the Collins Cup. And I think that it's kind of her race to lose third. I generally agree with you that if Daniela shows up, she's probably I mean, Daniela did not look good at the Collins Cup, but you never know. She mm-hmm. she looked good at Switzerland. <laughs> so it's just priorities, you know, peaking right. At, the right, at the right time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like even when she did Collins Cup is like, was, was that even an all out effort or was it more of a effort management race? Imogene Simmons, she looked good in Nice. She did really well. Did she get third at Nice? I believe um, so. Yeah. 
It would not be surprising to see her do well. I don't know what she's done since then. The depth of the women's field is pretty impressive. I mean, you have Holly Lawrence, Chelsea Sidero, Emma Pallant, Brown, Paula Finley will be up there. I mean, Carrie Lester, Sky Munch. You have Ellie Salthouse, who is, you know, maybe <laughs> it's going to be a good race between Ellie Salthouse and Holly Lawrence, certainly. Yeah. Both of them are looking strong. Talking smack. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, Jocelyn McCauley was, was looking good. So you never know. It could. I think the women's race is going to be interesting. Uh, I think the men's race, we kind of just kind of know it's going to happen, <laughs> to be honest, mm-hmm. at least in my opinion. Who knows? Somebody could come out of nowhere and just take it. But it would be more interesting if Jan was there, if Lionel was there, if Patrick Lang was there, just so that, or Sebastian Keenley, because then it would be a little bit more maybe unknown. And it's always fun to watch those guys kind of go at it. Yeah, I think one and two are pretty much locked in. I think so. But who knows? We say that and we might watch or or I'll be watching. You'll be racing. Yeah, I'll, I'll, be, be I'll be passing them as they come in at some point. Yeah. And I'm leaving from transition. So who knows, though? Maybe a random person will uh, could take it. The course is, you know, it's going to be pretty darn hot for the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the course is challenging. So you never know. You have some some dark horses. I mean, Jackson Landry looked good. Is Bart running this Bart Aeronauts? I don't see him in there. Okay. Because I know he he beat Jackson Landry at Haines City this year, and he looked really good. The course will play a role. The heat will play a role too. But cool thing is it's not going to be as hot. Or it's going to be hot, but it's not going to be as humid as what we've experienced here in the Mid-South. Right. Obviously, last week it's been pretty cool, but um, that dry air will will definitely be, you know, we won't be used to that. So it's something that we might not be sweating as much. We have to make sure we're hydrating and taking in fluids during the race too. But yeah, going going on to the race, uh, the the race course, you know, it's it's a little bit more unique for a world championship as two transitions. You know, obviously it's challenging just like any other world championship with, like you said earlier, thirty four hundred feet of gain on the bike and 1,300 feet again on the run. I think the the question marks right now are the swim. Like, will it be wetsuit legal? My opinion, I don't think it's going to be. I know the temperatures are pretty warm out there, and I just don't see it dropping below, you know, a couple of degrees over the next week. Yeah, I mean, I doubt it. Everybody should bring their wetsuit and a swim skin because uh, it can go either way, but yeah. probably not. I've definitely shown up to a race that I thought was going to just not be wetsuit legal, and... It, it was <laughs> the, the temperature plummeted, you know, the night before three or four degrees because there was a lot of wind and it kind of turned the lake over. So you never know what's going to happen and you never know where they're going to measure. The reservoir is big and it kind of is on the borderline somewhat. So definitely bring the wetsuit. Yeah, I suppose I remember two years ago in, in Nice, the women's race was wetsuit legal. Yeah. And the men's race was not. <laughs> yeah, that was silly. But I mean, yeah, it's one day, you know, so the women's race must have been just under, and if I recall, like ours must have been just over the, the threshold of 76.1. That's the other thing too. So anyone that's listening it, it, that comes to the United States, it's not the USAT rules of the 78 degrees. It's uh, 76.1. So they follow the ITU rules. But yeah, the swim, I think is pretty straightforward. You know, there's not really anything that's over complex about it. Uh, you're not in a river where it might be moving one direction to the other. Uh, it's not in the ocean, so there's no salt water to worry about or any marine life. I think it's going to be pretty straightforward in the swim. Agreed. Agreed. I know that 
So it's, it's wave start. I think age groups are going off every, I don't know, like 10 minutes or so, nine to 10 minutes. Um, it kind of depends. <laughs> so obviously the, the pros are going off first, starting with the male pros and the female pros. And then you have the uh, PC athletes and then you have male 40 it's to 44. 40. And then you have the older age groups and then you have male 35 to 39. So it looks like they're what they're doing is they're trying to separate the big age groups from one another to try to avoid drafting. So male 40 to 44 goes off at 725 AM and then male 70 to 74, male 75 to 79 and male 80 going next. And then at 7.41 a.m., so 16 minutes after the male 40 to 44 go off, you have the male 35 to 39 going off. So there'll be a little bit of a buffer, but there's still going to be a lot of a lot of drafting happening. And you're going to have a lot of 35 to 39-year-old eager men swimming really hard through older, older men. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's going to be a decent athlete, but hopefully right. no, nobody's going to get their head pushed under in that that mess. I looked back at the last couple of years and it looks like the, the age group waves are pretty similar. Uh, I know at Chattanooga, it was the same where the, the older age groups started pretty early. So I wonder Mm -hmm. one, does it break up, you know, any drafting, but also it keeps the course condensed too. that way people aren't out there longer. In theory, you could, you could argue that someone that's in their eighties, it's probably going to be slower than someone that's in their thirties. So they want to get the course opened up as quickly as possible after the event. You know, I'm sure they, they tell the city that at certain points that they can reopen to, to traffic and things like that. But yeah, that is going to play a role. Um, I know a lot of people have talked about the frustrations, um, especially the women, you know, that the race was moved a day and they had travel, travel arrangements moved around and that, that stinks. I, I can't even even imagine if you had travel plans arranged and then you had to re, you know re readjust all that. As far as the age groups, at the end of the day, in my opinion, overall it affects probably ten to fifteen men and ten to fifteen women that are truly trying to qualify for either an overall title or trying to get their pro card based on different criteria, um, where the time matters against the pros and you know if it's an eight percent rule or if they're trying to get top three overall amateur. That's when it matters for those individuals. The rest, you know, anyone that's going for the age group podium, um, you, you truly are racing against your age groupers in the conditions that you're you're starting at. Right. And there, there's the silver lining, I suppose. If there's any, if you're starting later in the day, I remember when I did Chattanooga, I was leaving for the bike, and I saw Ben Canute coming in. So I, I, I think yeah. the men, 25 to 29, left about two hours after the pro start. So. Mm. We can certainly re- relate to that, but now we have both genders smashed in one day too. So it, it's even extended even longer this year. So the women are going to be the most annoyed at this schedule because so all of the men go and then after that, so, so the male 45 to 49, they jump in the water at eight forty-five, and the first women go off. That's the female 40 to 44 and they're going off at, at nine Oh five AM and those two hours make a big difference. So, you know, you have, the first age group of the men going off at 7.25 a.m. and the first of the women going off at 8.58. So it's like an hour, hour and a half. It gets hot pretty quickly in St. George. So that's mm-hmm. that's what's going to make this tougher. But to your point, it's you're racing against people in your age group and the people in your age group are going off 
at the same time as you. <laughs> so yep. it, it doesn't matter. And, you know, if somebody wants to be top three in the amateur race to qualify to get their pro card, that's one thing. But I think it's worth recognizing that the actual world championships that's occurring is in the pro field. And, Correct. you know, it, it's like this is a an opinion that often gets like I might get heat for this. However, like, let's be real. Like the world championships is, you know, the, the men going off at 7 a.m. and the women going off at 7, 10 a.m. Everything else is is nice. It's a good celebration. And, you know, it's it's weekend warriors and, and other athletes participating in, in this race. And it's the age group world championships for sure. But everybody, we have to adapt and we have to kind of, we can control what we can control. And, you know, Ironman, they, I, I wish that they kept it separate to two days. So if the women go on Friday, men on Saturday, I don't know exactly why they, why they changed it, but there's no way to slice it. The women are getting shafted <laughs> in, I this, agree. Yeah. in this setup. And it's kind of terrible. And, you know, I, I wish there was a way to just kind of like alternate men, women. I'm not sh- exactly sure why Ironman did it this way, but I'm assuming they just didn't want the men passing the women at out on the course for safety reasons and, and things like that. Cause, cause the issue here is that there are a lot of athletes. It's not a normal race. It's like bigger than a normal Ironman 70.3 event. It's not like it's like a normal field. Uh, right. Like the men in this race are like the fastest men of all of the races. So they're going to be flying on the bike. So the difference between say, say that the median velocity that the, the median woman in this race is going to achieve versus the median man, it's probably greater than maybe in, in a, a typical race. So I think that Ironman is just trying to make sure the race course is safe, but it still isn't fair <laughs> because yeah. the women are going out in the heat of the day. They're going to be running when it's super, super hot. And, you know, maybe Ironman needs to do something like adjust the number of people who qualify. Maybe too many people are qualifying. Uh, you know, th- this wouldn't have been an issue if they did it on two separate days, but they decided to do it on one day. So obviously, and rightfully so, you're going to have a bunch of women, all of the women athletes who are going to be kind of pissed off. And I would certainly be pissed off if I was competing and racing, especially if I was 45 to 49 or, or in the you know, 18 to 24 age group where you're almost going off at 10 a.m. At that point, it's going to be like 80 degrees. And by the time you start running, it'll be 100 degrees. So the other thing to consider, too, is you don't want the men to impact the female race. Um, and I think right. I, my, that's, that's my bigger assumption is they, they separated it that way. It, you don't have, let's say a 30 to 40 year old male going through the field. And then there's females that can latch on and get that drafting benefit throughout the race as well. It's unique because it is a, fa- it's going to be a faster race or, or at least a better quality athlete. It's still not all the athletes from around the world because of the, the circumstances we're in this year. However, it's still going to be a competitive field, which, you know, you're going to have people that are out there that are really pushing hard and it's going to impact every age group. You know, there's going to be a caliber of athlete that's going at the similar velocities on the bike and you're going to have groups out there. And uh, so I guess we can move into the bike course too in a second, but, you know, I know some people asked about like, how do you overcome drafting and, and things like that? And from an age group standpoint, there is, a benefit, you know, we can, we can ride at 12 meters and there's still a substantial benefit at a, at a legal distance. Uh, when it's the pro field, it's a little bit different. 
Um, and you can, when you pass them, you can also pass them by rolling up behind them and then, you know, going around that athlete and, and overcoming that athlete. When you're, when you're pro athlete, I think you have to move out of the draft zone to make the pass first. So if there is, and there probably will be draft packs out there, um, you just got to be vigilant and safe and you, know, you call it out too. If you see people blatantly drafting, um, just yeah. let them know that, that they're doing it, you know, but if you're legally passing people, and you know, and you and you drop back when you're past. Um, as long as it's not by a train of like 50 people, you, you should be in, in good shape. But it's one of those things where the the course is hilling up to where I think it will break up some of those packs, especially towards the end. But then you have the element where you have like a about a 10 mile descent back into T2, and mm-hmm. I don't know if it's 10 miles, but it's, it's probably pretty close. And that's going to make a, a pretty big impact too is how people how many people are grouping up as they descend at 35 miles an hour going down the mountain i mean it's definitely going to be crowded i think it's going to be the issue here is that so many of these athletes are just going to be riding the same speed you know if you're spreading out this many athletes in a normal race there's going to be a a fairly even distribution of athletes but i mean just even in the waves the waves alone i mean how many what there might be a few hundred male 40 to 44 going off at 725 a.m gonna form a pack <laughs> it's it's tough to avoid it um yeah there's their capabilities are gonna be similar um, yeah. even though like the overall time of which the athletes get in the water is gonna be much greater so the start time is obviously gonna be impacted quite a bit so there is that that's breaking it up but within the age groups itself there's gonna be the element where people are gonna be at your same ability you know, I will say that this race, I think you're going to have a wider range of paces than at, you know, say Nice, for example, or South Africa, Chattanooga, just because these races had 200 slots, finished 30th and you could, or, or, or above, and you can get a slot and maybe the winner in that age group went an hour faster or more. That's good because people will be a little bit more spread out. It won't be hectic. It's crazy. There won't be people flying off mountains like we saw at Nice. <laughs> <laughs> No, no ambulances. Hopefully everyone, everyone rides safe. It'll be a fun weekend. I'm glad it's happening. And, uh, I know there were some question marks on whether this race was even going to happen because in the U S caseloads, COVID-19 increasing dramatically. You and I spoke like a couple of weeks ago and we were like, man, I would not be surprised if they they canceled this thing, but they didn't. looks like it's happening. They can't cancel it now. Right. We're a week out. <laughs> I mean, I suppose they could. It, you know, I, I know last year, I think I signed up for Muncie. It was canceled about a week prior. But but now I think there's more of an understanding of how the government's going to respond, how everyone's going to respond. So you have more of a timeline of when you can provide like a cancellation. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I told you, I remember we, yeah, we talked about it. And I said, I would not be surprised either way. You know, it's one of those things now you put all this time and effort into making it happen and anything, you know, cases can continue to rise. I mean, it, it realistically, like something could happen where there's a huge outbreak and maybe like airports are shut down, you know? So that's just the world we live in now, which is kind of right. wild. Even when you think about supply chain, like, I don't know, like obviously with, with bike equipment, I think about brake pads and tires and things of that nature, even Shimano parts are really difficult to get a hold of. It's like, is there anything that the race needs that could be impacted by the supply chain? Yeah, um, that's that can make it difficult to happen to do, you know. Um, I know food, like even when I went to the grocery store today and things are just lighter in the grocery store, maybe because it was a Saturday. And <laughs> but um, 
it's pretty wild to, to look at the difference in products that are available right now. Agreed. I've been trying to get a pair of tires for a month. I put the order in on Amazon and it was supposed to be delivered. Then it's been delayed. Now it says, sorry, sorry, it's late. You know, you can cancel next week uh, and try to buy them from a different source. So there's even some bait and switching going on. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not happy about, but uh, I ordered it. It was prime. It was supposed to arrive, you know, in a couple of days and I placed the order in, back in August and it's kind of ridiculous, but you know, I could just go to maybe the local bike shop has a pair, a set of tires, race tires, but we'll they, see. they won't have the GP 5000s though. That's for sure. No, that's what I was trying to get. <laughs> I guess moving on to the run course though, you know, pretty straightforward too. Like, like you talked about, it's, it's going to be challenging, you know, 1300 feet of gain. That's a hundred feet of gain per mile on average, you know, looking at the elevation map, looks like there's gonna be just two steady long climbs and uh, it's a tulip course. So that'll be nice to be able to, you know, interact with any spectators that, you know, that are there and things like that. And, and you'll be familiar with where you stand in the race as well, as far as like, having any type of key indicators of where you need to be versus, you know, where the finish line is and things like that. Two loops. The, the big thing here, I think, obviously you have uphill running, which you have to manage, but you also have to manage downhill running. Downhill running can wreak havoc on your legs, especially your quads, probably more dangerous to, to certain athletes to run on a, a course where there's obviously a lot of downhill. I mean, any course where there's uphill, there are going to be a lot of downhills, but if you're not careful on the downhills and aiming to be efficient, I think that that can ruin your race. If you're running uphill, you're going to tax your cardiorespiratory system, certainly. But, you know, if you're running downhill hard and you're not, you know, still coming down with your foot beneath your center of gravity and pushing off well, if you're overstriding, it's going to ruin your quads and you're not going to be able to run well. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of athletes on the second loop just doing the penguin shuffle. They're going to be hurting. They're going to be, their legs are going to be toast. Just their muscular system. It's just not going to be functioning. They're not going to be able to recruit motor units. I think it's essential for athletes to really be careful. So when you're running up the hills, you know, it's good to, it's reasonable to put out a slightly higher effort than you will on the flats, but you don't need to be running at threshold. You should still be below threshold, certainly running up the hill. And I'm talking about a threshold effort. So think about threshold heart rate, you know, rather than pace. It's a good strategy to kind of save it on the uphills. And when you're running downhill, just don't overstride. You could use gravity to your advantage. You could take longer, longer strides, and but make sure that your foot comes underneath your center of gravity when it when it hits. You want it to land kind of just barely in front of your torso. Um, yeah, you you want to. You can almost bound to, to, to mm-hmm. the extent of that. However, like the, the it's gonna be a lot of force coming down that hill, and, and like you mentioned, right. there's gonna be a lot of people walking. I wouldn't be surprised if we see more people walking down the hills than up the hills. Um, especially by that second loop, because the, the impact to your quads after a 56 mile bike, and then the first six miles of the run, it's going to be pretty painful. It is profound. I don't know how many athletes have like done an Ironman where, you know, in the last half of that, that marathon, the quads are just toast. I mean, it is jarring. It feels like you don't have any padding between your joints and it feels like, you know, you're, you're 800 pounds and your legs are not stable and it feels like somebody's smashing a hammer into your quads with every step 
Like you can't gut through it. It's not like you can decide to just push through and, and tolerate the pain. It's just, you don't have any control over <laughs> what's going on. And athletes need to understand that this race course is it's rolling and it's challenging and they can't get caught up in this, this concept that they're racing in the world championships and that they can lay down this miraculous performance. It's like, you can't fake fitness on race day. You have to race to your fitness levels and you have to be smart. This is just like any other race, just because it's the world championships doesn't mean you're going to be able to put down, you know, a, a superhuman effort, you know, that you wouldn't be able to put down in a different race. So I guess to that point too, I guess we can go back and loop back to the bike course. I know some people are asking about how to manage the climbs on a, on a really hilly course. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's been different thoughts on this and, you know, I know what I'm going to tell athletes and it depends on the athlete too. Cause if you have an athlete that's going to be out there for three, three and a half hours versus two hours and 15 minutes to two hours and 30 minutes, right. you know, they, they, you know, that athlete that's going to be out there for less amount of time, they can afford to push a little bit harder going up the climb um, because they're going to have the ability to recover going down the hill as well, where some mm-hmm. athletes might just need to, you know, ride it at an even pace. But the difference is, you know, when you think about like this course for in, in particular, the ability to, you know, the watts that you're pushing going up the hill, you're going to gain more time as if, you know, you're pushing more watts going down the hill because at some point there's, you you have to overcome the, the run resistance and things like that when you're going down the hill. So you, you can recover going down that last hill. But I, I want to recommend to athletes, you know, in, in the, well, not to the athletes listening, but, you know, you can probably push, you know, five to 10, maybe a little bit more percent higher than what your goal pace is for the race. And when I say goal pace, it's probably, you know, your, your FGP or, or your goal wattage for the race when you're hitting those climbs. And because figure if it's a five mile climb, you're going to be out there for, you know, roughly 20 minutes, give or take, you don't want to go above threshold, you know, for 20 minutes, you know, cause you'll be pretty toast going down the hill. Yeah. I think you have to key off of threshold more than anything on a long climb. You have to be under threshold. I mean, it's 70.3. So you, you can be at sweet spot on the climbs, but you can't, you can't be above it because you, you burn matches when you're above threshold, but you know, the, the way that athletes attack other hills, smaller hills, it's, it's somewhat dependent on obviously the athletes kind of reserve wattage, but also their ability to recover. So fitter athletes are going to be able to recover faster. So it might be okay for an athlete to attack, you know, moderately long hills a little bit more aggressively because, you know, the, the, their heart rate can settle down very quickly and, and they're, they can clear the lactate hydrogen ions from their blood, but you got it. You have to go by feel and you kind of have to know your rate of recovery after a hard effort. But as a rule, there's no precedent. You don't want to be above threshold for, for more than, you know, a few seconds at a time in a race, Cer- certainly not more than a couple minutes. Um, the other thing to consider too, is, you know, when you get to the top of that climb and you start your descent, um, you may not have too many opportunities to take in hydration, depending on how fast you're going down that hill. I know when we were at Nice, it was probably next to impossible. Yeah. Um, because there's so many turns and you had to be aware of who's around you and just aware of your the surroundings and the atmosphere. Um, otherwise you're probably gonna go over the mountain. You know, this race I don't think is is that tactical by any means, but you still want to be mindful of where you're going and obviously tra- taking nutrition as you're descending is a lot more difficult than taking it in as you're ascending. Yeah. And plus, unless you have like a straw coming up you, if, when you're descending and taking in nutrition, you're, you're going to be breaking arrow. And that's when you want to be arrow 
So I'm an advocate of taking a nutrition, going up hills. It's in a 70.3, you should still, you should be able to take a nutrition at like a sweet spot intensity. Like if you're putting out 88, 90% of your FTP, you should still be able to like drink, like kind of going up a hill or a false flat or something. But when you're going really fast, that's when you really just want to keep your head down and stay arrow. Now, you don't want to be taking nutrition when you're gasping for air either. So it's always, you kind of have to go by experience a little bit. You don't want to be taking a nutrition when you're hurling down a hill. <laughs> so some of the other questions we had too, you know, one, one athlete asked, you know, how long it takes to get acclimated to like the time change or, or jet lag, which for us, obviously, you know, we're, we're gaining an hour coming from central time to mountain time. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, there's really no adjustment made. Um, yeah, you know, it's a benefit. Honestly. Yeah, but like like time, you know, bedtime shifts a little bit, or, or maybe not at all, you know. And you know, so you're pretty well acclimated. When you're going back in time, you know, you're you're losing hours. That's when it gets a little more challenging, um, especially you know if you're you know if you're coming from overseas, that's gonna be a little, little bit more of a challenge. Um, you know, you you need to get adjusted to that time zone as quickly as possible. And so that, like, I don't, I don't have any tips, tips or tricks, you know, you land, you take a nap and, and try to just get, get into the rhythm of things right away. This, our book of the month is, is why we sleep. So I don't know if you started to read it yet, but I started listening to it actually when I was, when I was riding my bike. So the book is called why we sleep. It's by Matthew Walker. And basically he just does a deep dive into everything related to sleep. He, he covered this actually. So it's, it's an hour per, uh, so if it takes you a, an hour or sorry, a day for each hour that you're moving East. So, you know, if we're going to Europe at six hours ahead, if you really wanted to truly be on their, their time and have your, your actual circadian rhythm adjust, then it, it would take six days. You know, you can measure this by the timing of when, like the melatonin is released. So everybody, every human has has a rhythm. It's actually a little bit more than 24 hours apparently, but that's what changes. So, I mean, that's why if you travel East, the first day especially is going to be brutal and you just kind of have to force yourself to, to stay up. I think it's okay to take like a nap, like an hour nap. Ideally, you travel over there on the plane and then you just force yourself to, to stay awake. So in October... I'm supposed to travel to Barcelona for Ironman Barcelona. We'll see what's going to happen because of COVID. But, you know, so the plan there is I, I was going to be leaving Nashville at basically like 6 p.m. and then land in Spain at 8 a.m. But when I land at 8 a.m., it's going to be the equivalent of like 2 a.m. here. And I'm going to be tired and want to go to sleep <laughs> when I get to the hotel. <laughs> but the thing to do is just press on. You know, ideally, I would be going six days before, but you know, I'm going to be going four four days before, I guess, five days. That's that's literally if we're looking at the science, that that's how it works. So if it's a day for every hour going east, how yeah. has he talked about going west at all though? So if someone is coming from Europe and they're coming here, because I I remember when I went to Nice in 2019, the adjustment was actually pretty quick. At least it felt that way. Um, however, when I came back it was really difficult. I was waking up at two and three in the morning and I was just wide awake, you know, and I couldn't do anything about it. I just would get up and start, start working or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing, but so I I was, I said East just because it's tougher. So if you're coming 
West, I just think for a race, it's easier to adapt just because, and you might, I would even consider, you know, just kind of staying on your same sleep schedule and then maybe mm-hmm. coming close to the race. I don't think that would be a bad strategy because then it would be like, you'd be racing early afternoon. And we, right, we know that right. we know that like all the world records are set in like early afternoon because after your VO2 max is actually higher early afternoon, your internal temp is higher and at night your, your core temp decreases. And, you know, in the morning, your performance is actually going to be lower than it could be, than it would be in the afternoon. That's an interesting analysis, but the same idea holds in that, you know, it's still an hour or, or day per hour of, of time change for your rhythm to actually adapt. I guess the last question we have too is like, how, how do athletes manage the wave start if they start at a later time? And specifically they're asking because like, do they sit around for two hours? Um, from, for, and so to answer that question, I guess, to start it off, I know, I, I don't believe transitions close right away. Um, I think athletes are going to have the ability to maneuver a little bit later, if I recall correctly. You're going to want to sit down and rest. You don't want to be standing the whole time watching everyone get in the water. Um, right. It's one of those things you want to you want to stay out of the. You, basically, you, you just got to think about your race starting at 9 a.m. versus 7 a.m. You know, and that's the way to think about it. Um, if you're doing that, you actually have more time to wake up. Um, you, you just shift whenever you're going to have your nutrition, have your first meal, you know, and then also start your warm up, you know, prior to the race. Hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you want to stay off of your feet. You don't want to be standing around cheering on your friends. I did not. That is an interesting thing you said about transition, not closing. Yeah. I, I saw someone post that. I don't know if that's, if it's actually, if that holds true because people will be running through there at some point as well. So it doesn't make sense. Right. Maybe, 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 maybe they said, yeah, they haven't posted a time yet when it'll be closed. But if, you know, if they place athletes, bikes in certain areas strategically, like by wave in different areas of transition, it's possible maybe to get away with it. But, you know, you're going to have athletes going out and like, yeah, oh my God, it's going to be chaos. No matter what, it's going to be chaos. But, you know, there, there might be different zones, like transition zones. And I will say, actually, if there are two different transitions, then this is doable, actually, now that I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it. So, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they just let transition open for a while. We have to, we, yeah. we have to look into that and understand it more. Any last thoughts well, about the 70.3 world champs? It's going to be hard and it's going to be hot on the run, but when you finish, it's going to feel amazing. And I would say what I think the best advice that athletes can receive, uh, for a course like this is to err on the side of being conservative on the bike because the run, because the bike is difficult, that climb at the end, you're going to be climbing when your legs are tired. And immediately after that, you're going to embark upon the run and the run is challenging and you need your legs for that run. You know, if you're, if you're a great cyclist and you, you don't go, you, you can save your legs for the run and run well. And if you're a weak cyclist, then <laughs> you should not be overcooking the bike because you're going to run horribly no matter what. So in an age group race like this, where group dynamics don't matter, you just need to be consistent on the bike and don't overcook it on the hills. Spot on. Just be prepared, you know, like for the heat, it's going to be one of those things you want to make sure you're cooling yourself out there. 
to make sure you're hydrating yourself. Cause if you're coming from a humid climate, mm-hmm. it is going to feel different. It's going to feel better. You know, if you're coming from a humid climate, even if it's, you're coming from a climate that's 75 and humid, you know, it might even feel better if it's 90 and in low humidity. So just remember to, to always be drinking water and fluids, sports drink, um, cooling yourself down with ice and things like that. Yeah. And then yeah, managing to your uh, plan because there's going to be people out there that I think are going to take a risk going up some of those climbs and they're going to start hammering out, you know, pushing over a threshold and then you're going to pass them going down the mountain. So, right, right. or you're, or you're going to pass them on the run at some point run. when they're walking. So, but yeah, that's uh that's our recap for the 70.3 world championship. Thanks for tuning in. Um, if you need to reach me, you can reach me at Derek at working Or you can reach me at Conrad at working Thanks for tuning in.